Live from the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for February 26, 2024. Here's today's rundown. What if the U.S. Supreme Court dismantles decades of government agency discretion? Recent SCOTUS cases indicate it could happen. What would be the consequences? Physician and attorney Dr. John K. Hall has our lead story. We will also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Adam Brenman, healthcare attorney David Glazer, and Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Now, here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the program host for Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. As we come on the air this morning, we're monitoring the actions of Congress as lawmakers are racing to avoid a partial government shutdown by Friday's funding deadline. It's the fourth time in six months that the country has come this close to the edge of the cliff. Funding for four federal agencies may elapse Friday, while money for the rest is set to expire on March 8th. President Biden is scheduled to meet with congressional leaders tomorrow, Tuesday, in an effort to avoid a shutdown. We have a great deal of news to report this morning, so we begin with Dr. Ron Hershey's making his Monday Rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. You know, one of the things that CMS addressed in the new rule for Medicare Advantage was their use of artificial intelligence and automated protocols to deny care. And obviously their guidance was, wasn't acceptable. Just to clarify, the MA plans were using AI to predict the length of stay for inpatient rehab facility admissions, skilled nursing facility admissions, and home health care episodes of care. If the AI program said the patient would need eight days at the SNF, they refused to pay at day nine. CMS explained to them that before discontinuing coverage, the plan must review the patient's specific clinical needs and compare that to Medicare coverage guidelines, and they must approve continuing care if the patient still meets the Medicare criteria, regardless of what AI said. Now, how does this AI work? Well, they take millions or hundreds of thousands of past admissions and use those patient characteristics and length of stay to then predict the length of stay for the current patient. Well, I was thinking about it, and actually many hospitals do the exact same thing to their doctors. They have staff that looks at charts and determines a working DRG for each patient. They then use the Medicare geometric mean length of stay to tell the doctor that is when they expect their patient to be discharged. But just like these AI programs, Medicare's GMLOS is based on thousands and thousands of admissions in that particular DRG. And in no way is it intended to predict the expected length of stay for any one patient. Think about it. To hit the highest weighted DRG in a triad, the patient needs one major complication or comorbidity. Does anyone really think that that patient with one MCC is going to have the same expected length of stay as a patient who's got two MCCs and three CCs? Of course not. But that's what happens. So stop using the GMLOS like this and stop writing the GMLOS on the patient's whiteboard unless you also want to give MA plans permission to use their own AI tools against you. Now, on another note, many of you know that one of the big topics in healthcare is prior authorization. No one likes prior auths and CMS has proposed rules to rein in the insurers with their use of prior auth. But you may also recall that Medicare itself has its own prior authorization program for certain services performed in the hospital outpatient setting. When this program was introduced, many were surprised that CMS limited to the hospital outpatient setting 
excluding inpatient surgeries and surgeries at surgery centers. Well, it appears that may soon change. In a notice published, published two weeks ago, CMS announced they're creating a prior auth process for ambulatory surgery centers as a demonstration project, quote, to develop improved procedures for the identification, investigation, and prosecution of Medicare fraud occurring in ambulatory surgery centers, providing services to Medicare beneficiaries. Unfortunately, we have very few details of this process and no idea when it's going to begin or what surgeries will require prior authorization. But it does differ from that hospital outpatient process. For hospitals, obtaining that prior authorization is a condition of payment. If you don't do it, you don't get paid. End of the story. But for CMS saying that for ASCs, if the prior authorization is not obtained, the MAC will simply contact the ASC ask for records, and then review the records to determine if they should pay the claim. Now, why is it different? Well, CMS told me that they were limited by regulatory and statutory differences between ASCs and hospitals. Now, as I reported here, CMS has stated that about 20% of hospitals, the, the outpatient prior authorizations have been denied on first pass. So it'll be interesting to watch how the ASCs perform. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Today, I want to talk about upcoming 2024 audits and what to expect. It's been almost four years since the world shut down due to COVID. Life has now been divided into before COVID and after COVID. Before COVID, CMS aggressively pursued audits with DME suppliers, home health, hospice, behavioral health, long-term care facilities, and hospitals. When COVID hit, most audits were paused, but not for long. As you know, CMS resumed its audit activities as early as August 2020. However, in the world of COVID, there were exceptions to every rule, many of which were state-specific. Even exceptions had exceptions. It's imperative that you maintain for your type of healthcare service every policy, every exception, every bulletin, every advisory opinion that occurred from 2020 through the present. If you've not assigned this task to someone in your facility, you should do it today. Recently, we have seen an uptick in increased audit activity with mnemonic compression devices, or PCDs. PCDs were not listed in the top error rates for the 2021 improper payment report, but in the 2023 report, PCDs have the second highest error rate behind oral cancer drugs at 78.9%. With an error rate that high, PCDs will be a focal point of audits. Other items listed in the 2023 improper payment report for having high error rates include urological supplies, parenteral and enteral nutrition, manual wheelchairs, and various orthoses. These items will all see increased audit activity in this upcoming year. Basically, as long as the error rates remain high, audit activity will continue. Now, surgical dressings have also been consistently audited. Surgical dressings are a relatively complex product to bill DME suppliers of surgical dressing 
and physicians who order surgical dressings are seeing an uptick in denials. The 2021 Medicare fee-for-service supplemental improper payment report covering claims from July 1, 2019 through June 30, 2020, listed surgical dressings as having the highest improper payment rate at 69.7%, followed closely by therapeutic shoes with an error rate of 67.9%. Since then, there has not been much improvement. The 2023 improper payment report covering claims submitted between July 1, 2021 and June 30, 2022, shows that the improper payment rate for surgical dressings is still at 62.1%. Therapeutic shoes did show some improvement with an improper payment rate of 51.4%, but this is still significant. For the 2023 reporting period, insufficient documentation accounted for 82.4% of improper payments for surgical dressings. Other types of errors for surgical dressings were no documentation at 1.9%, medical necessity at 1.7%, and incorrect coding at 1.9%. Targeted probe and educated, or TPE, audits were some of the first audits resumed by CMS. Recovery audit contractors and RAC audits are also increasing. I kind of consider RACs to be the bounty hunters of Medicare and Medicaid. Audits of skilled nursing providers are going to see a hike this year, with a growing number of federal and state recovery audits adding to specialized compliance reviews announced last year. In 2023, regulators instituted audits of facilities using potentially inappropriate diagnosis of schizophrenia, as well as a new five-claim audit of every U.S. nursing home that was specifically meant to root out improper payments. Further, CMS came under additional pressure this past summer. That's when the Government Accountability Office said that the agency needs to do a better job of recouping overpayments. And what do we think that CMS will do in light of GAO instructing the agency to do a better job recouping? The answer is audit more. But as they say in football, the best defense is a good offense. Be prepared. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of Nelson Mullins. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Adam Brenman, and physician and, attire, and attorney Dr. John K. Hall. He's standing by to report our lead story. It is Monday, it's February the 26th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are you tired of navigating the complex landscape of healthcare refunds? Could your facility be unnecessarily parting with millions of dollars? An eye-opening webcast will revolutionize your understanding of compliance and refunds. Listen and learn when healthcare attorney David Glazer debunks refund myths, clarifies compliance essentials, and empowers healthcare professionals to safeguard facility finances. David will uncover the secrets behind when to refund and why it matters. Register now to attend Mastering Healthcare Refunds, Navigating Compliance with Confidence. The webcast is this Thursday, February 29th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Don't miss this crucial insight into strategic refund management. Register today at the Rack University Bookstore. Thank you, Clark Anthony. And here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, 
As I say every Monday morning about the same time, what could be risky today? David. Well, Chuck, it's the risk that I blew it by not choosing a leap day oriented song. But I'll use that failure as an excuse to reiterate what Clark just said about the look before you leak, look before you leap webinar on refunds and how to avoid doing the right thing the wrong way. Things like why you don't want to say start a letter with my lawyer said or why you don't want to use the word overpayment. Now, sheepishly onto my segment. It was just a few weeks ago that I apologized before doing a segment that was focused on contractor misdeeds. The apology was because I prefer to focus on education about rules and compliance strategies, not complain about maladministration. But I am hopping mad, and I think I can use the anger for good, so I'm doing it again, both the apology and the complaining. Now, if you work for NGS or at a regional office that supervises NGS, I hope you'll listen to this and help me. I don't know what's going on here, but the trouble seems to run deep. I'm not even going to focus on the client that was told that it could bill for 200 units of Botox when 150 were administered to a patient and 50 wasted, but that it would be fraud if all 200 were given to the patient. Whoa. NGS tried to educate a physician that waste was superior to the use of the drug, but that's not what I'm talking about. I represent a physician who was audited by NGS. In fact, NGS suspended payment to the physician, putting his practice in serious jeopardy. Now, the good news is that when I brought concerns to NGS's counsel, they reacted really well and addressed them. In fact, they put the overpayment on hold while NGS worked to fix the assessment. So I want to emphasize that I'm very impressed by NGS's counsel. Now, if only others at NGS were willing to or able to heed their attorney. So here's where the story goes off the rails. In late January, the doctor got a letter asserting he'd failed to pay the million dollar overpayment he owed the government. Now, this was obviously a mistake since the overpayment was placed on abeyance the last time I communicated with the council. So on Groundhog Day, which is gonna turn out to be fortuitous, I sent NGS a letter enclosing the correspondence I had with their counsel saying that the overpayment was suspended. I said, hey, I'm sure this is a mistake and that you'll fix it. Much like the movie Groundhog Day or maybe a bottle of shampoo, NGS messed it up, rinsed and repeated. So on Valentine's Day, I got a letter from NGS or they sent a letter with no love. First, they didn't even put my name on the envelope. Now, some healthcare systems have 100,000 employees. How are they supposed to get mail to the right person when there isn't a name as an individual addressee? But that was the least of the letter's problems. It said, we're unable to respond to you without a current or valid appointment of representative. The form we have is dated June 10th, 2022, and thus outside the guidelines. Now, I don't know what guidelines they're talking about, 42 CFR, 405.9.10 says that unless revoked, the representation is valid for the duration of an individual's appeal of an initial determination. Anyone who's waited six years for an ALJ hearing knows you don't need to send in annual appointments of representation forms. But apparently, someone at NGS doesn't know that. So they sent a letter to the client without sending it to me, completely ignoring the points I raised in my letter, the substantive ones, uh, and utterly ignoring the fact that the overpayment is uh, suspended. And I might add, 
one of the original problems we were having was NGS was ignoring the appointment of representative form and not sending the communications to me. That's part of why the lawyer stepped in the first place. So I'm beside myself. Now the clients got another letter suggesting that details about the refined overpayment were sent in January. The client didn't get it, and I sure as heck didn't. Of course, if they're not honoring the appointment of representative, it makes sense that I might not have received it. So what are the lessons? First, NGS has some issues to work through, but we can't fix that. More substantively, when you have issues with a contractor, reach out to the contractor's general counsel. I'll do that here, then I think it might help. In my experience, they're both competent and helpful. If that fails, go to the regional office. The contractor answers to CMS. There are times when a regional office can smash through a problem. So finally, I'm gonna close with a lyrical message to whoever at NGS is handling this appeal. And it comes from Expose. What you don't know might hurt you. What you don't know, don't know, don't know, might hurt you. And Chuck, maybe we can call this report an Expose and I'll turn it back to you. Ah, thanks, David. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Adam Brenman with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Legislative Update is sponsored by Celis. Celis is modernizing the healthcare financial experience by bridging gaps and aligning interests across payers, providers, and healthcare consumers. Here now is Adam Brenman. Adam. Thanks, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Um, over the last few years, state ballot initiatives have emerged as a powerful tool in shaping healthcare policy across the country, and they appear to be gaining traction as a productive means of moving and enacting healthcare reforms. For those of us keeping track, this feels like one of those new yet unsung trends in healthcare, so it seems worthy of a bit more scrutiny and perhaps a little sunshine as well. Uh, ballot initiatives are typically citizen-initiated ballot measures, but can also be assigned via the legislative process or by a special state commission. The ballot initiative process essentially allows citizens to propose statutes or constitutional amendments, depending on the state, and collect signatures to place those proposals on the ballot for voters to decide. Several factors have contributed to the growing use of state ballot initiatives for healthcare issues, the most prominent is the frustration over gridlock at the federal level. With partisan divides often paralyzed in Congress, advocates see ballot initiatives as a way to bypass this gridlock and instead enact reforms by putting them straight to voters. State ballot initiatives have been used to address a wide range of healthcare issues from tackling medical debt to prescription drug pricing reform. Some notable examples of 2023 healthcare ballot initiatives include safeguarding abortion rights in Ohio, Medicaid expansion in South Dakota, establishment of a dental medical loss ratio in Massachusetts, and making healthcare a constitutional right in Oregon. Already this year, there's a campaign in Florida to put Medicaid expansion on the ballot, while South Dakota is interested in amending its Medicaid expansion via a second ballot initiative in as many years. The rise of state ballot initiatives has seemingly profound implications for the future of healthcare policy. On one hand, they offer a promising avenue for enacting reforms in the face of federal polarization. By empowering voters to directly shape healthcare policy, ballot initiatives can lead to more responsive 
and representative policymaking. However, the use of ballot initiatives also raises concerns about the role of money and special interests in shaping healthcare policy. Campaigns for ballot initiatives can be costly and well-funded interest groups may have disparate influence in shaping the outcome of these initiatives. Additionally, the complexity of healthcare policy can sometimes make it difficult for voters to fully grasp the implications of the initiatives they're voting on, resulting in unintended consequences or ineffective solutions. So it's important to note that because ballot initiatives continue to be an increasingly popular way to change or introduce laws, some states are attempting to make it tougher for such initiatives to be introduced and pass. A great illustration occurred just last year in Ohio. Although ultimately rejected by the voters, Ohio's ballot board approved ballot language to raise thresholds for ballot initiatives to pass. The proposal attempted to mandate that all ballot measures receive 60% of the vote and an increased number of signatures to be placed on the ballot in the first place. So moving forward, it'll be important to carefully consider the role of ballot initiatives in shaping healthcare policy and to ensure that they're used in a way that promotes transparency, accountability, and equity. This is currently amplified by the upcoming elections later in the year as we're likely to see several ballot initiatives pop up in the fall. Uh, but clearly, the growing trend of using ballot initiatives on healthcare issues reflects a mounting recognition that state-level action can be uniquely valuable in driving change within healthcare, and this warrants more of our attention. Thanks, and back to you, Chuck. Wow. Thanks, Adam, very much. That was Adam Brenman. Adam is a federal legislative analyst for Zealous. And coming up next, the possible demise of the Chevron deference. Could it happen, and what could be the consequences? Our own physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall, standing by to report our lead story. Mark your calendar for the event of the year. On February 29th, MedLearn Media invites you to a one-day leap into savings sale. This leap year celebrates success with a 29% discount on the top-tier educational products from MedLearn Publishing, Rack Monitor, and ICD-10 Monitor. Here's how to unlock your offer. Simply visit the MedLearn Publishing website on February 29th this Thursday. Add your chosen products to your cart. Then punch in the promo code LEAP24 for your discount. Again, that's LEAP, L-E-A-P, 24, to unlock your 29% discount. Our team of industry experts is standing by, ready to propel you toward your career goals. Seize this opportunity to give your career the boost it deserves. Remember, this offer is up for grabs for just one day. LEAP into savings with the most trusted name in education, MedLearn Media. As you heard us mention at the top of the broadcast, the Chevron deference could be going away. So what happens if the Supreme Court of the United States dismantles decades of government agency discretion? Well, recent cases of the Supreme Court seem to indicate this could happen. What are the consequences? Well, here now with our lead story is our own physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall. Good morning, Dr. Hall. Good morning and thank you, Chuck. So let's start with some history because that's the only way to make sense why I'm talking about Supreme Court cases related to commercial fishing. Let's start with Congress makes bills. The president signs these bills into law. These laws are often specify only broad goals and have some inherent ambiguity. The executive agencies are then charged with developing the operational regulations consistent with the statutes. So where does Chevron come in? 
1984, the Supreme Court decided something called Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council. And this has been an important case. It's been cited nearly 20,000 times by courts and nearly 100,000 times in briefs before courts. The central question of the suit in Chevron is, what are the limitations of agency interpretation of statutes? The case has been crucial to the efficient functioning of government agencies for 40 years. The decision has also allowed Congress to draft intentionally broad legislation and leave the details to the agencies. In short, a decision based on resolving ambiguous legislation has encouraged 40 years of more ambiguous legislation. At issue is the deceptively simple question, and this is where it gets to interpret the law. It, this is who gets to interpret a law when a statute is ambiguous. Chevron deference imposes a two-part test. First, a court must determine if a law is ambiguous. If it's unambiguous, then the court must simply follow it. If the law is ambiguous, though, then the court determines whether the agency's interpretation is reasonable or permissible. And under Chevron, a court must accept any reasonable or permissible interpretation. But courts may reject unreasonable agency interpretations of ambiguous statutes. The Chevron doctrine arose because judges seemed to be partisan in interpreting regulations. And this resulted in widely disparate interpretations across various courts. Without Chevron's, without Chevron, the court is essentially the policymaker. One might legitimately ask, what's the difference between a politically appointed judge making this policy decision and a politically appointed agency employee? Well, the main difference is administrative agencies use highly trained experts to interpret and carry out federal laws. A judge, well, he or she is just a lawyer without billable hours. So in 2000, the major questions doctrine which I've reported on previously, added an additional limitation to agency authority. And that doctrine noted that courts cannot presume that Congress does not delegate issues of major political or economic significance unless that delegation is explicit. So in this context, what happens if the court overturns Chevron? First, there is 40 years of ambiguous legislation that's now subject to litigation. A prime example is inpatient care. Nothing in healthcare is more ambiguous than the definition of inpatient. The current operational definition belongs to CMS, not the Social Security Act. And everyone seems to hate it. Without Chevron, it is subject to litigation. Second, there will almost certainly be wide disparity in district court outcomes. Consider the very real possibility that the two midnight rule could be accepted, rejected, or modified in different jurisdictions. Consider the possibility that every hospital that refunded money in response to an OIG or DOJ investigation now wants remediation and a return of their funds based on a potentially unnecessary refund as determined by a court. Based on oral arguments, it seems that Chevron is going to change in some way. We now have the possibility that monolithic federal regulations could be reduced to nothing more than regulatory rubble. It's the Wild West out there, Chuck. We just got to wait and see how the court decides. Back to you. Thanks, Dr. Hall. That was physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall. And folks, that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And we want to thank our panelists today. Uh, a special thanks to Adam Brenman, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Arnold Hirsch, and physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall, who reported our early story. And folks, one more thing before we go, be sure to join me next Tuesday. I'll be tomorrow, Tuesday. 
When I'm going to be on Talk 10 Tuesday, that's when Dr. H. Stephen Moffat is going to be talking about why good news is really good news. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck. Have a great week, everybody.